so yeah, that but that's normal. It's normal to be in a room and and having to explain your humanity to people on like a Tuesday of your job. <laughs> that's that's normal to me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Lainey Louie. I'm the founder and editor of LaineyGossip.com. I'm a TV host in Canada, and I am striving to be a better ally. Hi, I'm Huana Taha. I am a television writer and producer. And like all of us, I have at some times not known what to say, but that's not good enough. This is Show Your Work, about working while Black, and how to be a better ally. normally do on this podcast is talk about the business of Hollywood and the work of Hollywood, but the business and the work, it seems, of so many people right now is talking about and discussing police brutality, anti-Black racism, and the killing of George Floyd, um, which happened right after the incident in Central Park with Central Park Karen, aka Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper. So Duane and I were thinking that it didn't seem right to talk about our usual, the things that we normally talk about um, when so much pain and uh, so much trauma is happening, but we still wanted to center our conversation about work. So this episode is dedicated to understanding the experience of working while Black and also perhaps having an ongoing exploratory discussion about working as an ally, working while being an ally. For that, then, we have invited Kathleen Newman-Berang to join us to have, hopefully, an introductory conversation and hopefully mirroring the conversations many of you might be having in your workspaces and in your life spaces. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Hi, Elaine. How, hi, Duanna. I'm really excited to be here, um, even given the circumstances, because I love you both. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been hard. It's been tough. And uh, I think this is a necessary conversation to have, even if it makes some people uncomfortable. That's why it's so necessary. I think one of the things that we've all been thinking about is that as everything is unfolding and you know, shocking everybody and not being shocking because we've been here before, there's also the kind of dissonance of having to go to work, having to still do your day-to-day while the world is exploding, while all this stuff is continuing to happen. And so I think that's a lot of uh, what we want to dig into uh, for for our purposes and for everybody who's listening is kind of going how do you be a person in the world when, you know, you can't just scroll your phone for 
six hours like we all do, even though we know better. We should mention that we are recording this episode on Sunday, May 31st, and certainly probably by the time you hear this, this episode is scheduled to drop on Wednesday, June 3rd. Um, Many things may have changed, but probably um, what won't change is what Kathleen has to tell us about the the aggressions, micro and macro, that uh, you and many other Black people encounter in your workspaces all the time. Um, What we will not do, though, on this episode, Kathleen, is we will not ask you to tell us how to solve racism, nor will we ask you to tell us how to be an ally. That is the work that people like me and Duanna and the people listening have to do on our own. Um, But I think it's important for us to, before we begin or continue our work, understand the work world and how that informs the rest of your world from your perspective. Does that sound good to you? It sounds good. And I do appreciate that because I I think that in the past uh, week, a lot of Black people, especially Black people who work in predominantly white spaces or live in predominantly white spaces and have surrounded themselves, purposely or not, with white people, we have been put in positions to... um, have to tap into uh, emotions and talk about race and and educate people in ways that um, there's a tax there that happens on our mental health when uh, that is being asked of us. Uh, there's a responsibility as well that comes with um, proximity to, to whiteness. I say this a lot, but Proximity to whiteness is a privilege. And so there are times when I am okay with being the person that educates or the person that says, you know, this is how you be an ally. Because I know that there's a lot of black people that don't have the ear to powerful white people like I do. Um, I have a platform. And so I do want to use it. But um, I appreciate, Lainey, that, you know, you are not going out of your way to ask me <laughs> how to be an ally because, you know, I, I, I have done work already. I've, you know, written, <laughs> I have expended all of my mental energy into that. Um, and I will continue to, but asking that on top of everything else that, um, you know, that we're going through right now is a lot. And I think that people should just keep that in mind. Um, if you are emailing somebody or sliding into their DMs because that's the only black person you know, and I'm noticing that with some of my followers, that I seem to be the only black person they know, which is a problem. Um, and they're, you know, coming into my DMs and being like, where, what should I do? Um, and to, yeah, that, that answer to me is, that's on you. That's a, a to quote Toni Morrison, take me out of it. <laughs> that is a you problem. And Kathleen, I think it's worth contextualizing uh, for people who haven't heard our other podcasts uh, that you've been on or uh, that that maybe are being introduced to you for the first time, uh, that you are having those conversations professionally. Like you are having those conversations as a Black woman, as a Black person in the world, and as you say, somebody who has open DMs. But then you're also doing a lot of 
speaking and writing in your in your day job, right? Like part of what you do is discuss issues like this in the world. Uh, and I just wanted to point out, I wanted to point that out to uh, also contextualize the fatigue. Uh, not that uh, you can't have that fatigue if that's not your job, mm-hmm. uh, but just to point out that it is something that is your 24-7 right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that context. Yeah, it is my 24-7 and I am okay with that um, because this is the work that I have chosen to do and it is the work that I feel honored to do. But there is a fatigue. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I wrote this in in a piece that I wrote for Refinery29 that, you know, I am not able to click away from black trauma, from the images of George Floyd being murdered in the horrific way that he was. Um, I'm not able to click away from that because I am a black person, um, but also because of my job. And because I have to be extremely online, I have to be on Twitter, I have to be on Instagram, I have to be watching the news. Um, and so there's there's the extra layer of exhaustion that comes with that. Yeah. So Kathleen, that article you wrote for Refinery29, a lot of what you were addressing was the word normal and how normal means something for Black people um, and something entirely different for non-Black people, including other people of color who are not Black. And throughout this pandemic, we've been talking about what normal is and cavalierly almost referring to a time when things were normal and hoping to go back to normal. But normal for Black people, of course, comes with so much pain and trauma. So in the context of work for you, what is normal? Can you begin to explain it a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that what... I want the takeaway to be is just that we are constantly in a pandemic when it comes to anti-Black racism. And this is something that we as Black people have been dealing with since (laughs) slavery, since before that. And it is something that we deal with in our everyday lives. And it is a pandemic. And I just am, am looking around and seeing the national response the international response to this pandemic and the steps that we're taking to try to, you know, stave off this virus. And to me, I feel like we need to treat anti-Black racism the exact same way. So when you talk about uh, what normal is on the day-to-day with Black people at work, it is all of that. It's all of the, the things outside of your workplace that contribute to mental health issues with black people. It is the trauma that lives in our bodies. And it is also the microaggressions, which, you know, the Amy Cooper example is a great example. So some specific examples, you know, I have worked in workplaces where I have felt dread (laughs) to go to work with a different hairstyle because of the comments that I would get or the, you know, the petting and the touching that would happen. And that is just another way to other you. And we know that othering leads to fear. It leads to stereotypes that are very damaging. Um, Also, things I've dealt with in my workplace is being the only black woman and having to fight for topics to be included in shows I've worked worked on, um, topics to be included in things that I write, 
to a room of people that don't look like me and who don't understand and who don't don't want those topics included. Um, and that is a very specific that's a very specific example for me as a as a television producer and, and a writer. But I think that, you know, you could go to the corporate space and find black people in the corporate space who are trying to represent their <laughs> entire race in a boardroom. And that's hard and it's emotionally taxing and it's very lonely. Um, so yeah, that, but that's normal. It's normal to be in a room and, and having to explain your humanity to people on like a Tuesday of your job. <laughs> that's, that's normal to me. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't escape my notice that for example, the piece that you wrote for Refinery29 that Elaine is talking about is explaining that normal and that trauma to people who are not Black, right? Because, I mean, you, look, you're an incredible writer, and I'm sure that there are people who are Black who understand what you're talking about, but still love to see it written so well and so uh, so beautifully and clearly and painfully but ultimately, you are explaining that to a non-Black audience. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I am not. Yes, this piece was for non-Black people. I know, you know, I've heard from, from my Black friends and, and colleagues and people who follow me um, thanking me for it, but thanking me because they know that people are reading it who need to to read it and to need to understand it that are not black people. And I think that, again, it, it, it is, to me, it is the least I can do with my platform and my privilege to explain things to, to white people. Right. It, it, right. it is. But it, it's also um, feels like something that I, sh I shouldn't have to do. Well, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And that's sort of where I wanted to follow that up was that uh, when you're saying, uh, you know, like that is in the context of your job where, hey, I have an opinion on this topic or, you know, uh, I want to write about this thing as sort of the job. But when you talk about uh, having to fight for something to be included in a piece, in a story, in a show, um, maybe uh, it's maybe it's worth people hearing what the reaction is or what the pushback is, because I would bet money that there are people who go, oh, but I wouldn't think of that as as shutting somebody down or not seeing that experience or so forth. What does the response look like, I guess, is what I'm saying. Are you told it's too niche or it's uh, or maybe next time? Like, what are you up okay. against? Yeah, I mean, I think the the main thing is just the complete blind spots that people have in that in that they're not even thinking about some of the the issues that you would want to bring forward. So, you know, if there was a topic that was happening, like let's use George Floyd as an example. Um, this didn't actually happen, but I'm just using this as an example because if I get too if I get too specific here, I'm gonna get in trouble. So um, using <laughs> George Floyd as an example, um, to go into a room and hear a bunch of topics that, you know, somebody wants to discuss that day or, hey, this should be in our lineup or this should be, um, 
what you write about today. And it has nothing to do with that. And you just came from talking to your friends and your family and crying on the phone with your brothers about the senseless murder of this man. And then you come into work and it's, it's like it didn't even happen mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. those people. That is, I think, part of the, it's, it's not even pushback. It's even before you get to the pushback. It's like they're, mm. they're, it doesn't even register. So then you go in, let's say you, you pitch a story or you um, bring this issue to the forefront. The pushbacks that I have heard in my career have been things like, I don't think our audience will care about that. Um, we, we just talked about race last week. Oh, mm-hmm. why would we talk about it again? Um, I think, I think you're, you're overreacting about this. I'm not sure this is as big of a, of an issue as you're making it. Um, yeah, those are some of the things that I've heard in the past as a pushback to some, to some stories and issues I wanted to be centered that I felt were not. Um, and to be clear, Kathleen, is your experience not unique? Other Black people in media experience the same? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just on a call with a bunch of, of my Black peers in media. Uh, we got on this call because we were all feeling uh, a certain type of way in the, in the past week, and we wanted to come together and, and feel like we were less alone. And a lot of... Uh, my peers are also in, you know, newsrooms or in boardrooms and they're the only black person and they feel the exact same way. And they're telling anecdotes that were so similar and, you know, fighting for certain things or, or even how stories are reported. And I think that's, if we're talking about the work behind media, I think everyone should really look at how these issues have been reported, um, how the protests and protesters are being reported, um, what lens people are looking at these stories through. And I think that's one of the biggest fights that black people in media have as well is being like, you need to tell this story through a certain lens. You need to let black people tell this story because they are going to have a different perspective. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's not unique to answer your question. It's, it's not at all. And just to extrapolate, uh, I wouldn't certainly want, wouldn't want to speak for anyone else, but I'm glad that you said, uh, in boardrooms as well, uh, because it's, it goes, of course, we know far, far beyond the media, but I would imagine that those dismissive comments are, uh, that's not our biggest concern right now. Or, uh, you know, we, we just need to focus on finding the best person or whatever. Like, those are the kinds of comments that uh, are essentially the same thing through a non-media lens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I have friends who work in the corporate space and, and they have heard just as dismiss- dismissive things. I think that it's actually interesting because in the corporate space, it's, it's a lot more blatant. It's less microaggressions than blatantly like that's not that's not what we do here and mm. you know you you should be lucky to be here mm-hmm. so don't don't push it you know they my friends in, in corporate spaces hear that and I think in media because most people in media are you know even if they're 
they're white people, they're liberal, they they feel like they are, I hate this word now, but they feel like they are woke. And so it's a, it's more subtle. I feel like they think that their racism is is not racism, truly. Like, you know, their little microaggressions, they're not little, but their microaggressions um, are things that I feel like they think they can excuse. And like you mentioned, Duanna, like they could be like, oh, well, that's, I wasn't trying to shut down her story because it was race. I really didn't think our audience would would get it or whatever it is, right? And then in the corporate space, it's probably more blatant. I'm sure there are people listening that are like, yeah, I've, I've had a racist white dude say ridiculous things to me in a boardroom and I was the only one and had nothing that I could do or say about it in the moment. I'm glad that you referenced uh, the, I, I know we're putting the word in quotes now and forevermore, but the, the wokeness of people who see themselves as uh, liberal and in the media because mm-hmm. it's almost more fraught, right? There are mm-hmm. people who believe they can't they can't have flaws or blind spots because mm-hmm. they whatever, they have this album, they read that article. Uh, so therefore they can't have uh, any any racist ideas baked into them as if we're not all in this society all the time. Yeah, I think that's huge, Duane. I think that what one of the biggest things I try to explain, and I don't know if I always do it in the best way, but that even just saying the words white people in pieces I've written in the past for Lainey Gossip, for Refinery29, I say those two words and I get a pushback even just from saying white people. It's not all white people. <laughs> and I think yeah. that you just touched on it there is that if you are a white person who lives in this society, this white supremacist system that we're all living in, then you are part of the problem. And if you are not actively working against anti-Black racism, you are complicit. And just by a function of living and working in this white supremacist system, you are also complicit. And once you realize that, that is when the work can start. Once you say, Mm -hmm. hey, this isn't about me. I'm not personally saying that you yourself are racist, even though you probably are, you probably have some (laughs) inherent biases and things that you think that are racist by the nature of you being a white person in this society. But once you take it away from that and be like, I am a part of this system and how am I being complicit and how can I work to change that? That's what we're talking about here. And I think that's how we move forward. And you need to like, you know, there's a book called White Fragility that everybody should read. We need to get past that that fragile like ego that a lot of white people have that say, oh, it's not me. I'm not racist. So leave me out of it. I, we can't leave you out of it. You're part of the problem. Well, it goes back to what you said a little bit earlier about who you who we choose to center in a story. And so if you are reading an article and you come across white people and your first instinct is to be like, well, not all white people, not me, you are centering yourself in a story that is about someone else's pain, that the pain of a person who is black, of a community, 
mm-hmm. that's black. Um, and I, I think that's really important in terms of all of our work, like the work that you, the three of us do, we're storytellers. I mean, everyone really is a storyteller. And who we tell our stories for and about. Um, and I think that there's, a, you know, Kathleen, you mentioned complacency and like being complicit. And I think that there is, there is a complacency that sets in that makes you complicit in, and not you, but me, if, if I'm using, if I'm getting specific about examples in the stories that I tell and on the website, there are times where, and I have to admit to it, if I want to do the work and I have to change, um, on the website, there are times when I'm like, well, is the balance of content about social justice issues outweighing the fun? And how is, and we all have this like throwaway term that we use, like Susie and Sydney, or, mm. you know, um, how is Mary in Massachusetts going to feel about this? How is Karen is essentially what we're saying. How is Karen going to feel about this? Is Karen going to want to keep coming back if like three out of the four articles on Laney Gossip or whatever, if three out of the four stories that we're telling on this show or talking about on this program, if they're about justice and racism and prejudice and violence and brutality, I don't want to turn her away. What happens is that when we center or when we worry about what Susie and Sydney or Mary in Massachusetts or Karen thinks, then they become the center of the story and not the people who are actually the victims. I will put my hand up and say that there have it's been, I've been complacent too many times about that line of thinking. And the work for me is going to have to like confront the fear of what, whatever those consequences are, I've got to face it. And I think that's the work that many of us have to do. And many of us in media have to do. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like I feel all of that so hard and I still have to do the work in that too, because, you know, I've worked in media for a decade and I've heard that my whole career of like, yeah, what, what, what's Susie in Saskatchewan going to, going to think about it. And, and the, the image of the audience in, in your head is a white audience. And so that's who you work for essentially. That's, that's the idea in media in Canadian media in my, in my experience. And not even just in my experience and what you also see of the product of Canadian media, you can tell that white people are centered in the stories that are told, the majority of the stories that are told. And even if there's, you know, one black person in a newsroom or one black person in a boardroom, it's really hard for that one person to fight that fight every day. But that's still work we have to do. And so I have also, you know, in the past been the person that lets it happen. And and I think that as much as it's not my job to educate everybody or to put that on my shoulders, we all have work to do. This work is constant and I'm going to continue to do it. And I think that there are a lot of black people who feel lonely in the work that they're doing, but they know they don't have a choice. And I hope that white people feel the same way, that they don't, they also don't have a choice but to fight the same fight, that it's just as urgent for them as it is for us. I think 
too. I mean, I very, very much want that to be true, that it is just as urgent. And I would say, uh, as somebody who is uh, obviously non-Black, uh, I think part of what I have to remind myself and what I, I hope we can all accept is that you can't, you cannot approach this expecting never to make mistakes yeah. or never to be told mm-hmm. that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, I write fictional television, I write scripted TV, and there's often a lot of back and forth of, it, do we have characters of, of, uh, of a diverse description? But then, uh, well, who's writing those characters? Is that person entitled to, to write those voices? If they do, uh, are they going to be generic people? And then it becomes a logistical runaround, right? Well, we don't have other people to write, create those characters. We don't have time to go get that person. There's the, I guess there's the perfect world and then there's the world we live in. But to me, I think part of what we're talking about and part of what uh, you were saying earlier about about needing uh, people who are white, people who are non-Black to see it as just as urgent. I think the other half of that has to be uh, expect that you will get some things wrong and deal with it. I think there are a lot of people who go, well, we don't want to go there. So we'll just do what is safe and easy and write for uh, uh, Marion, Massachusetts, uh, I think was our, was our totem character Hmm. Uh, uh, rather than risk being wrong rather than risk being seen as uh, racially insensitive or out of touch. But I, but that's, that to me is the, is the hurdle to constantly be pushing against is uh, who gets to get through life without making mistakes or get through work without making mistakes. Right. Like I, you guys both tell me if you feel differently, but uh, I feel as though uh, we should try and fail rather than, pretend that uh, a, a program, a show, a book or whatever that doesn't acknowledge any diverse perspectives or that they exist, uh, that's arguably the greater of two evils. I may live to regret that statement. No, I know. I think you're right because I think it goes back to comfort and having these conversations are, is not comfortable. And I think that a lot of people default to, oh, well, I didn't want to say the wrong thing. So I said nothing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Saying nothing should not be an option. So, yeah, I want to get uncomfortable. And I think, you know what, I've been seeing it in the past few days. I've been seeing people posting and saying people of color instead of black people. Let's get specific here. This is a specific issue to black people in Canada and America. And if you can't even name it, we're not going to be able to fix it. So say black people, say anti-black racism, say police violence. Let's name what we're talking about here. And I think that as soon as those words come out, people get their backs up or they, or they think, oh, I can't, I can't speak on this or I can't. Well, and everything you're talking about, Duanna, and I just think that imagine how uncomfortable we are when we're watching people who look like us die, get killed murdered. That's uncomfortable. You not knowing how to, how to talk about it in a boardroom or you not knowing, you know, what to post on Instagram. That's the easy part. 
Seriously. What's not easy is the the labor that you are performing as a member of the media in this time, because as as you said, this is the work that you've chosen to do. This is the work that you feel honored to do, but it is work. And so, you know, you, I know you, well, thank you for doing our podcast, but in addition to our podcast, you're writing, you're consulting, as you mentioned, when in, in many of your workspaces, you've been brought in to be asked about diversity issues, inclusion issues, almost as if you're the spokesperson of blackness. Um, I know you're going to be doing radio interviews. Um, that labor is often not compensated. No. Yeah. I was, I was talking about it with uh, some of my black women colleagues at refinery 29. And uh, one of my colleagues Danielle Cadet, I'm mentioning her by name because she wrote an incredible piece um, for R29 called Your Black Colleagues May Look Like They're Okay. Chances are they're not. Um, and she just spoke about that tax uh, emotional that, you know, that we give and um, that in the past week it's it's been really hard and that, you know, maybe you should be checking up on your black colleagues. But yeah, to your point about consulting and and doing the work, I also want to shout out, you know, black people in newsrooms. Like I, you know, work for at the end of the day, Refinery Twenty Nine is like a, a lifestyle website. So yeah, we're doing important work and we do news and and we talk about social and political issues. But I also get to like write about TV shows and fashion, and um, there are other black women doing work where they, it's constant for them. And I just want to, you know, acknowledge them and acknowledge how hard it is for, for them right now as well. And, um, they're, they're doing more work than I am to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's, I, when you look at pay inequality, and you look at what black women are making compared to our white colleagues. And you look at what a black woman brings to a company. The amount of times that, you know, I've been pulled in to, like you said, Lainey, consult on this diversity issue and saved companies from screwing up, from putting out a Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad. <laughs> from imminent disaster. Yeah. Save them money. Save them embarrassment. So not only that, but also added a perspective that they wouldn't have had without me and black women around North America, I'm sure can relate to this. And we are not compensated. In fact, we're getting paid less for that work. It's, it's unfair. It's unfair on top of unfair. Yeah. And partly uh, I, I, partly I think that's due to the fact that people don't know how to parse that, right? Which is bullshit, let's be clear. Uh, but it is because you are consulting on something that is so intertwined with your identity uh, that it becomes about, well, can you just like, uh, just give us your take, just give us your feeling. Uh, as though it, 
you know, as though as though you just sort of have these opinions uh, available for for rent to these big corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I think uh, to your point, there are like there are consultants by profession who are paid handsomely for what they do. Uh, like I, I what I'm trying to get at is the ways in which. I suppose people devalue that consulting work because it's it's seen as oh just your take just your opinion not a mm-hmm. uh, something with statistics and numbers and a pie chart. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right that it's devalued um and it's I think the consultation is seen as it's just innately in me to just Oh, do you have a few ideas on on this thing that has to do with black people? And that's just going to, you know, roll off the top of my head and it doesn't take any work or effort. And it's like. Even just acknowledging, again, just othering somebody because of their race and making them think about this stuff that takes work. And that is tapping into sometimes it's tapping into trauma, it's tapping into racism that, you know, you faced in the past and that takes work and that takes effort. And it's also on top of the other jobs that you're doing. Mm-hmm. There was never a time when it was like, Hey, we're going to set aside this time for you to consult us on these issues. And it'll be aside from your other work. And so you don't have to, you have to do less of this stuff and more of this, and we'll pay you for that. It's never been that. It's always been on top of your work. Hey, consult us on this. On top of your work, help us with this thing. And it's just, yeah, I mean, devalued is the right word. And I think that the the takeaway from that is if you are someone in the position to hire Black people and have them as your employees, you should be thinking about that that tax and how much you would pay for it and how valuable they really are to you and pay them accordingly. Well, because it's not like it's optional either, right? Imagine somebody said to you, Kathleen, hey, can you just consult a little bit? Do you have any ideas about like uh, how this will play to a Black audience or, or have a diverse take? And you were like, no. <laughs> Like, can you imagine? Well, I mean, I think that's another thing. And this is the the fine line here is that you want diverse voices, specifically black voices in your spaces because we can offer these perspectives. And then if you're the person that's in there, you want to be able to offer those perspectives because you're like, this is why I'm here. And again, going back to the privilege of being in those spaces, you're like, I know that there are so many black people who have not been able to be in this position. So because I'm in it, I'm going to do everything I can to educate, to change stuff, to be that person that they can go to. But then it's like, it's, it's underappreciated and it's not valued financially. It's not valued. It feels like it's just something that you should already do. And I think there needs to be, that acknowledgement there of how much effort it is and how much pressure it is. I, yeah, I, I just, 
I'm, and I, I, I hope I'm not, not being specific enough with my examples, but I'm also trying to save face here. I'm also trying to like not get myself in trouble with employers that I would like to <laughs> hire me again. And you know, even in examples I'm trying to tell from my friends, I'm also trying to be vague enough so that they don't get in trouble. That is its own shitty, fucked up oppression because I think that in wanting to share your story, but not wanting to compromise your ability to continue sharing stories in a way you're still protecting the people who have made you feel unsafe or unvalued. Yes, absolutely. And I, and anyone who has seen, um, Tyrone Edwards, who was on the social and, uh, gave just a beautiful statement on, uh, how he was feeling as a black man in response to the murder of George Floyd. And, uh, he talked a lot about that exact thing about not speaking up or, playing this certain type of black person that is palatable to white people and and shrinking so that you could be that that perfect black person who doesn't who shields yourself from all of this other stuff and from the scrutiny and get the right jobs and get and have all of this and now we know that a lot of that doesn't matter because you could still be killed by a police officer. You get, you still have an Amy Cooper calling the police on you and wanting that to happen to you, threatening you with calling the police, which we know how that ends disproportionately for black people. So it's, it's one of those things where I'm trying to inspired by Tyrone, have the courage to just say it anyway, to just be like, fuck it. Yes, this happened to me. I have been in spaces where I've tried, I've been silenced and I'm not going to let that happen anymore. But it's also, it's also really scary because if I lose this position, I know that there are so few people in it to be able to do this. And Mm -hmm. if I lose this position, I'm also unable to amplify the voices of the black women that I mentioned that are doing the work way more work than I am. They're in their communities, they're organizing, and I'm just trying to amplify their voices. And so if I'm not there, there's very few other people, and there's other people who who do the work that I do. I don't want to be like, I'm the only one. But, you know, if there's, there's not a lot of us. Well, no, it's, it's fucking rare enough. Yes. That there is somebody who is as high profile as you are in a position that is uh, you know, by nature, supposed to be a personality who speaks to issues and speaks to the world. No, of course there are uh, uh, alarmingly few. Uh, enough that, as you say, like you've been talking through this podcast about uh, talking to my some of my black colleagues in the media uh, as though you all kind of know each other because oh, yeah, we do. We probably do, right? Yeah, we do one hundred. Yeah. <laughs> And we, and, but we, you know, and we create our own support systems, which is, you know, I'm, I know there's black people listening that if you are whatever profession you're in, if you can have that support system, um, it's a lifeline for me. You know, I have a Twitter group that's 
black women writers in Canada. Um, we have, you know, this, this zoom conversation with a bunch of black people in media, um, the other day. And it was, um, those conversations keep me going. Those conversations are help me to feel like I'm not alone. They, um, you know, help with all the things that you, that you take for granted. And when I'm saying you here, I'm talking to non-black people, um, if you take for granted in your workplace that you can just go talk to your friend and vent about all the things that, you know, your boss just said, or, um, you know, that report that was annoying or whatever, and you can just vent and you let that off your chest and that lightness you feel after you do that. So many of that that we need as black people is because of microaggressions. It's because, you know, I've, I have group chats where I just like dump stuff on, my friends and my colleagues and my peers because of that. And that is something that a lot of black people don't have in their workplace. And that adds to everything we're talking about. It's like when we say your black colleagues are not okay, check on them. It's because a lot of the times if they're in predominantly white spaces, they don't have anyone else to unload on. Right. Like you're having those conversations on uh, Twitter and on group chats and so forth, because oftentimes, not always, but the vast majority of the time, you're not physically in the same space. There aren't yeah. four to 10 to 20 uh, black women or black people working at the production company or the law firm or the whatever. No, right. No. And yeah, no, there's not. And it's, I also know that it's rare, like uh, Refinery29 has R29 Unbothered, which is specifically, it's like an offshoot of the, of the uh, brand for millennial black women. And there are a lot of black women who work there that I can turn to. And I know that that's rare. And that is, again, like it's a privilege and it's something that I don't take for granted. Um, but yeah, if there is the ability, no matter what job you're working in, to find those people and find that network, do that. And then for the allies, if you're trying to be an ally, just check in and, you know, create a, create a space that feels safe enough that a black colleague could say something and speak up if they needed to. I mean, I think that that's why we wanted to talk to you today um, on the show, because it's not just one layer of vulnerability when you're working, when you're in a workplace and you're black, it's multiple as you, you've just laid out here. It's from the minute you get to work, it's even before conversations have been had, it's a lack of checking in, um, and then ideas being shot down or rejected, not having anyone to vent to because, very few people understand specifically what your experience is. And then even in the vent itself, having to couch it in vague language so as to protect your livelihood. Um, when you consider the layer upon layer upon layer of vulnerability, um, who wouldn't be exhausted, right? Um, and I just don't know how much, I, I just don't think we talk about that enough. Um, because as you say, as you said earlier, Kathleen, I think it goes, if, even if it is noticed, it's not mentioned. And in the unmentioning of it, there's like, it's complicit. Like there is a, what is it? Complicity? <laughs> What's the noun? 
Yeah, com- uh, complicity is what yeah, you Yeah, complicity. Yes. I can spell it. I just can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is complicity even in that. Yeah. And while we're talking about complicity, uh, Kathleen, you mentioned that your colleague uh, wrote a piece that said, check on your Black colleagues. Uh, or we're talking about, you know, the people who are the the one Black person in the workplace or, or one of only a few. And my concern is that people who uh, work in, in workspaces or in neighborhoods or uh, who attend uh, schools where there are no Black people or no Black people that they know will think that none of this applies to them. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that, well, I don't have a Black colleague to check on, so guess I'm good. Uh, and I, I, I just want to, you know, ring the bell that in fact, that is the opposite of the case that as, as other or as uncomfortable as black people may be in spaces that are majority white or majority non-black in a work context, uh, that, uh, you don't not have an issue if you don't have uh, a a black person at your work at your school uh, in your neighborhood in your group you have more uh, but more importantly you have more of an obligation to notice these things and bring them up and discuss them because you don't have somebody there like if you are the person who is sitting at home and uh, you know instagramming the memes and doing that whole thing and worried about what can I do? Like, that's what you do after the donation. You have to say the thing because there's nobody else there so that maybe someday it's a place that is appealing enough or open enough that you share a space with that person. Again, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, No, you're, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. I think that those are the places that need the most work. You have no black person in your office. What are you doing? What is your boss doing? You need to be the one that speaks up and says something about that. Um, I also think that then you have to be the ally that's there because I've been talking about the one black person in the room who has to fight and talk about issues and and bring up things that pertain to, to black life and say, hey, this should be important. This should be centered. If there's not anybody there, those topics should still be brought up. And then that should be on you then. When I, I keep talking about trying to, to make it personal for people that are not black and it's, and it is exhausting. I literally just got a text from my, my brother. I'm trying not to pay attention to my phone, but I just got one. And, um, he just is talking about how exhausting it is to come, to convince white people to not discriminate, discriminate against us or kill us. He just wrote that to me and he's it's just so exhausting and it shouldn't be, it should be just as personal to somebody else who is not black than to us. And I just want other people to take this on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So... I can be specific here and just say that, you know, I've gotten a lot of DMs from people who don't have have black people in their offices or uh, have black colleagues or bosses and, you know, asking what they can do. And one thing that I thought was great was a teacher reach out, reached out to me in response to a list of resources on anti-black racism prevention that I posted. And she said that she took that to the head of her department and that they are now going to start teaching from those resources. Hmm. And that to me is how you be an ally. What a great example, because uh, I think in that case, what what we're getting at is nobody tapped her on the shoulder and anointed her the person who was going to care about having uh, you know, uh, educational resources about black people and the black experience. She decided to be the person, right? Yes. yes. Not that there needs to be only one person, but it often needs to start with one person. Mm-hmm. And she decided I'm going to be that guy without waiting for the, the, yeah, the fairy godmother tap or waiting for the gold star from somebody that she admires online, uh, i.e. you, Kathleen. Uh, you know, she didn't ask you, do you think I can be this? And can I, can I turn myself into this kind of person? She decided to be it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's what, uh, I am getting at is that we all need to decide to be that person. If there are 10 people who are non-black people who are all uh, advocating for this kind of inclusion and recognition fucking great like that's that's as it should be it still won't be enough until it's not something that we have to consciously uh acknowledge uh i'm not going to paraphrase the the text that you just read uh but to uh, to see black people as people should not be something we have to work on but until it isn't uh just decide to be the person let everybody decide to be the person i think is what i'm trying to to get at, uh, rather than wait for somebody to tell you how to do it or, uh, for somebody else to appear to be that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The extension of that too, is that when you are that person, you use the word, I think we've all used the word uncomfortable today and Mm -hmm. allyship is going to be uncomfortable. Um, to go back to your point, Kathleen, will it be as uncomfortable as dying? Uh, no. And I think that that may be the way, the most direct, straight up way to frame it is, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable to take a list of recommendations to the principal and be like kind of suggesting how they do their job. And it might be uncomfortable to um, stick up for your colleagues who are black or 
advocate for them or be the pain in the ass pushing a particular story when you are, especially when you are not a black person and you are in the boardroom or the conference room and it is going to the, all those eyes are going to shift onto you and you will be making a case and you might be dealing with people in their minds saying, God, why are you harping on about this? Or whatever it is that racists think. It is going to be uncomfortable. Well, and Elaine, you're really building to a to a point, and I don't want to cut you off, but I almost think that's an important thing to uh, to get right with. Yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. If people are, somebody in that room is going to look at you and go, who the hell do you think you are? Or why are you taking up this totem pole? But once you acknowledge that that is going to be the case, like spend the time getting right with that and then go, yeah, okay. And here we go. And we do it anyway, because what's the alternative that we don't like nothing changes if we're not uncomfortable to, to your point, to Kathleen's point, like the comfortable is doing the same things that we're used to. Yeah. And it's about also about dismantling systems that white people have benefited from. So that's uncomfortable to dismantle a system that you are experiencing privilege in. What's that old, uh, not old, but what's that quote about uh, when you've only ever experienced privilege? How does that uh, equality seems like a, like a lot? What's that? I got to Google. <laughs> I know what you're talking yeah, about. Right. I'm probably not going to get it right either, but it's. Um, equality know, feels like oppression. Yeah, equality feels like oppression. Um, yeah. And I just think that like, there's some, really hard, <laughs> uh, uncomfortable conversations we need to have now moving forward after this. Um, we need to talk about the police and the function of the police. And if this function is disproportionately killing black people, we need to examine that and dismantle it. And I don't, I don't think that's a conversation people want to have. And I think that's a conversation black communities have been having for a long time. And it needs to get beyond that because it hasn't, hasn't changed yet. We need to talk about how, you know, peaceful protests have not been working to a certain extent. And that, you know, any way black people protest have been met with derision with criticism, with, well, don't do it that way. Okay, people were kneeling peacefully. Don't do it that way. Hmm. Don't do it the way that we've seen in the news for the past few days. Mm -hmm. What way are we supposed to do it? People are dying here. This is life and death. Well, I think that is, there is real fear. Um, And I want to tell the people who are interested in being allies that I, I get personally what the fear is. The power structures are powerful. So it's understandable to be afraid of them. Um, not too long ago, I was, you know, associated and involved with a whole bunch of criticism related to um, a perceived attack on the power structure in Canada. And the people who would defend that power structure rain down their hate real hard on you know, my environment, um, not just mine, but the environment that I'm 
like I'm part of. And it caused real trauma for people. It is really scary to feel that half a country, um, a lot of whiteness is hating you, is targeting you, is threatening you. And well, shit, that is, that is the discomfort. And so if we're talking about power structures, police is power structure. And having conversations and challenging what policing looks like, how policing can be improved, how policing, um, how policing needs to examine itself, all of those things, even wanting to have that conversation can invite a fuck ton of like horribleness right up your ass simply for asking the question. So I get it. Um, what I'm, I think what we're trying to say is no one is going to get beyond this if we're not all willing to get a little bit uncomfortable and make some small sacrifices. Are we willing? I think that's the question that allies have to ask ourselves. What fear are we willing to confront? I'm not going to lie. I'm afraid. You know, there have been times where I, listen, I'm going to call myself out. Took me a few days on Twitter to, to say something about what happened with George Floyd and with um, Amy Cooper. One of the reasons is I just, I couldn't find the words. And I, I usually like to take my time to find the things to say. Um, and I, I, I was still trying to like articulate how I felt. Another reason is because I, uh, social media and the negativity, I, I didn't know if I had the space for it. But even opting out, I've learned, is a privilege. Black people can't opt out of being black. The fact that I could opt out of social media is a fucking advantage in my station in life. And I don't know that I am able, I don't know that I can confront myself or live with myself if I opt out anymore. And so when it comes to the website, the same thing. Do we lose sponsors? Do we lose advertising if our site is challenging these conversations or at least having these conversations and like pounding the issue and, you know, do people turn away? Do they get bored? I worry about that. And I have to say like, now I'm getting to the point where I have to have honest conversations with myself as an ally and say, well, you have to stop caring or you just have to move forward. And the things that you lose are not going to be anything compared to what you would lose if you don't do the right thing. But the fear is real. For an ally, it's going to be a it's going to be a like scary. And if you are out there thinking of yourself as an ally and you are afraid, I'm with you. Lainey, you explain that so well because I think that the fear fear is the right word. That is I think what people are are experiencing, but as you said, that fear pales in comparison to the fear that black people have felt our whole lives. <laughs> it pales in comparison to, um, you know, the things that the opportunities that we have lost out on just because we're black. Um, and the work that we have to do that we've been talking about this whole conversation the work that we cannot opt out of. There is a privilege to be able to 
um, not engage. And I think that that is, um, you know, you're proving yourself as a good ally, that you're confronting that and wanting to do better with that. Even though I also will say that, you know, you've been doing the work for years, but it's also, but this is also part of being an ally is that the work never stops and that you're constantly having to Mm -hmm. face, am I doing enough? Have I been doing enough? If I'm uncomfortable, am I uncomfortable enough? And so I think that that's a, everything you just said is a great example of that, that that work never ends. Um, I think a lot of people through this will be like, I reposted, um, I reposted, uh, a link to a bailout fund and I donated. So I'm done. <laughs> well, done. yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I'm uh, proving my point by cutting you off. Uh, so clearly I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working as a great ally by, uh, (laughs) but, uh, I think that that is the place where, where people, I'm just full of, of cheesy quotes, but that expression of, uh, evil will triumph if good people do nothing. I think that what makes people afraid also the fear is also in the enormity uh and laney you were saying uh earlier like we just have to get used to it we just have to buckle up uh but i think that people who uh, would you know think that there are atrocities happening and murders happening to black people get afraid when they follow the thread right? Like we can say that this past weekend has been uh, a horror show of police brutality. uh, And you can get most people to even acknowledge, yeah, well, I can see why uh, Black people would be uncomfortable in a police presence. But then when you follow that thread and you say, well, maybe then we shouldn't have a police presence at our, you know, kitty carnival at school, if we ever have a, a kitty carnival at school again. Maybe they shouldn't be the, you know, the uh, whatever. They're not, uh, Toronto had a, a rather large kerfuffle with the Pride Parade uh, and whether or not uh, police should be able to be in the parade in uniform. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, the idea was Toronto police have not been safe for uh, people in the LGBT community. But when you start to follow the thread of what dismantling the structures, as you said, Kathleen, means, uh, I think people get intimidated and shrink back down. And I think that's part of the work, too, is going, yeah, it's not all going to get done this summer. It's not all going to be finished. And then we won't have to think about it anymore. We have to keep going and we have to keep investigating all the spaces that we don't even realize there's inherent racism baked in or inherent threats. Uh, or inherent ways in which a space is anti-Black without people realizing it. 
and uh, and confront them like just on the daily. It's not a one shot deal. But I think that in our conversation about allyship and obviously I want to be respectful of your time, Kathleen, and we've already taken up so much of it. Um, there have been small takeaways today. I hope for me, for sure, probably for you, Duanna, hopefully for the people listening. Um, in terms of the work that we all do as members of the media, to me, another way of practicing allyship is in the conversations that you're going to have in the coming days about the protests that are happening, which remember are in reaction to the killing of a black man by a police officer in Minneapolis, which is another in a too long, so long list of black men and women killed by police officers, not just in America, but beyond. Um, in those conversations, if you're going to talk about the protests and the destruction and the violence, instead of just focusing on the violence and the so-called looting, maybe redirect the conversation to why people are expressing their grief and their anger and their trauma in this way. Yes. That is how you can be an ally. Yes. And educate yourself in the history of these protests and the ways in which the attention has been directed to these issues because of these kinds of protests. And exactly, the point is, when, when you're talking about feeling bad for a target, more than you're talking about feeling bad for the murder of a black man, the murder of an innocent black woman, that's an issue here. You need to talk about, you need to really examine why you care more about things than you do about black lives. It goes back to centering someone in a conversation. Yes. And who we choose to center. And I also just want to say some names out loud because I also think that people disassociate when we say, you know, general things like black men and women are dying. That should, that should really hit you. It should. Um, but I also want to say their names. So George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Regis Korchinski, Paquette. And that's just a few names on a very, very long list. That is way too long, as Lenny mentioned. That's just this month uh, or last month uh, by the time we, we run this podcast. But that's what we are looking at here. Those are the people that we know about. Those are the people that we have heard about, the Black men and women who were murdered within the last month in North America. And when you start to think about and dive into and read and really acknowledge the scope of how often that is happening, only in the situations that we know about, uh, only in the situations that are reported or otherwise uh, able to be proven, then you start to get a tiny idea of the reason for the protests, as you say, Kathleen, not the target of, but the, uh, the efforts behind and the escalation from 
uh, protests that, as you were saying, people said, don't do that. Don't protest like that. Then, like, yeah, understand the uh, the backstory, if you will, of of how we have arrived at this point as a society, uh, and then try and change the conversation for people who aren't doing that reading that work just yet. Yes, absolutely, and know that it it is all connected. You know, when we're we are talking about work and we're talking about microaggressions. And I think that it, I mean, I feel like I don't have to connect the dots or shouldn't have to connect the dots, but I'm going to anyway. We know that those microaggressions and those small things that dehumanize black life on a daily basis lead to Amy Cooper's. Mm. Amy Cooper mm. calling the police on Christian mm-hmm. Cooper. We saw it that week. We saw it in real time almost within 24, 48 hours, George Floyd die and what happens when you call the police on a black person. And Amy Cooper knew that. Mm-hmm. And Amy Cooper is the person in her office who is commenting on her colleague's hair. <laughs> Amy Cooper is the one dismissing ideas. Amy Cooper, as um, I can't remember who wrote this piece, but it was for the cut. And they put it like this, that Amy Cooper is your neighbor, your teacher, your boss, if provoked in the wrong way. I'm sorry, not even provoked. The provoked is not the word they used, but it is your neighbor, your teacher, your boss. And I think that that, I just... I just want those lines to be connected because I think that people see them as two separate issues. Yeah, it's a continuum. Yes. Yeah, I mean, just to end it off, I think I just want people to think about this in context of the pandemic. And the pandemic is disproportionately affecting Black people, the Black community. We know that COVID-19 deaths are higher among black people and Mm -hmm. that emotional tax of dealing with that. And then also in the middle of it, protesting, having to take to the streets in masks to protest for your life while your community is losing lives. It is just unimaginable even though it is par for the course. (laughs) Like it is something that feels so outrageous to have to do in the middle of a pandemic, but then you're also like, of course we have to do this shit. Um, So I just want to, when we go back to work, I want you to think about that when you're interacting with your Black colleagues, with the Black people in your lives. Think about the mental health, think about the fact that we have to go to work and put on a brave face. And when I say go to work, I know that, you know, we're remote. So let's get on Zoom, continue to do our work in the middle of all of this, on a, on the, in the middle of a pandemic, on top of the pandemic of anti-Black racism. I um, am better at expressing myself 
um, on the page, I think, than I am <laughs> in in this form. And so I um, am just going to refer to a little bit of what I wrote in uh, my piece for Refinery29. Um, you know, right now, Black people are dealing with a trauma that festers and spreads. It is exhausting beyond comprehension, and yet we get out of bed and we go to work. We take our bonnets off. Black girls understand that one <laughs> and hop on Zoom. And even when we are not okay, we have to be. We take to social media to plead for our lives with white people. We appeal to allies to be better, to do more. We mourn together and we express our anger. We cry and we fight and we hold each other up. But we also know that this will never end, this pandemic and this hopelessness that we feel is normal. And I just, I wanted to end on that because I think that I don't know if I've been able to express myself in the, in the best way throughout this podcast, but I um, really am just trying to appeal to the humanity of people to recognize that this is not an okay time for a lot of us and um, it shouldn't be for you either. I think that's a really poignant place to end because, uh, you know, to put this in context, as we said, we're recording on a weekend. Kathleen, we asked you uh, to come and be with us and do us this incredible uh, grace of being here, even though we like hanging out, even though... Uh, <laughs> This is probably a conversation that we would have that having you here and talking with us right now is yet another thing that we've asked of you. And it's uh, it's something that I want to acknowledge that you're here and spending energy that is precious and that is being uh, depleted uh, exponentially more than normal. Uh and you spent it with us and uh, to to speak with us. So we just want to say thank you so much for that and for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy again to, to have this platform and to be able to do what I feel like is the bare minimum to have these conversations. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that people go away and do the work and also find other um, Black voices to amplify and to read and who are <laughs> smarter than me and <laughs> are better at educating than I am um, to continue uh, your work to become an ally. Kathleen, thank you so much. Uh, you can find Kathleen, of course, on laningossip.com, also at Refinery29, on Twitter at KathleenNB. Same goes for Instagram. Um, to everyone listening, thank you so much for your time. Show your work and also show your work as an ally. See you next time.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.